I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. Donna hangs on to the spotlight this episode, does not relinquish it to Brett, but she will have to share it with Jonathan. Won't have to share it yet, though. By the end of year one at Bennington, Donna hasn't written the secret history. She has, however, lived it. She's had the first draft of experience, encountered the people and situations and emotions that will serve as the book's basis. Bennington itself is the catalyst and inciting incident, along with Claude Frederick's Homer class, the romance with Paul McGloin, and the sweet pain of rejection from the classics group, even as she is being admitted, partially and for a limited time, into its ranks. She could now drop out of school and it would make no difference. The secret history's momentum is unstoppable. But she doesn't drop out. She doesn't go back, though, either. Not for that fall of 83 term, anyway. Donna sends a letter to her Ole Miss mentor, Willie Morris. It's dated October 14, 1983. In it, she says that she's taking off the semester, in part because she requires a rest, in other part because Claude Fredericks, the teacher with whom she's been studying most closely, is on sabbatical. She tells Willie that she's now learning both Latin and Greek. Then she writes this, quote, Don't imagine that I'm becoming a scholar, though. I have begun a novel, and that occupies my days and nights pretty well. There are several compelling takeaways from this missive. Number one, the emotional and psychological toll exacted by her first year at Bennington is high enough that a recuperative period is necessary. I'll bet it is. Experience that many momentous life events in that brief a time span, and you're gonna wanna take a breather. Number two, she's studying Greek, though not, it seems, with Claude Fredericks the quote, real Julian Morrow, since both he and she are off campus that fall. So either she's teaching herself or, and this strikes me as the more likely scenario, she's teaching herself with Paul, now in Cambridge at Harvard Law School, overseeing her instruction long distance. The latter strikes me as the more likely scenario only because Paul, as a Claude disciple, is the closest thing to Claude himself, which is of course what Donna would want. The question is, does Claude ever teach Donna Greek? The answer, unclear. Her friends are under the impression that he does. I asked Jill Eisenstadt, class of 85, about Claude, and she says this. Oh, and apologies, listeners, for the whale of the saxophone. I conducted this interview with Jill in a bustling coffee shop in Park Slope. 
Like okay. I tried to get into his ancient Greek class, but sure. I couldn't get in. I think Donna was the only girl to get in. Yet Todd O'Neill, the, quote, real Henry Winter, is under the impression, the strong impression, I might add, that Claude does not ever teach Donna Greek. I have no memory of Claude having mentioned to me that he was teaching either Greek or Latin to Donna in tutorial. Whether Claude does or doesn't teach Donna Greek is a matter of minor importance in all respects, save one. If he doesn't, then she'll have to rely, and heavily, on the testimony of Paul McGloin in order to know what went on in those classes. Number three, and this is the takeaway that takes the cake. Donna's started writing the secret history. The game is afoot. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. It is now spring semester, 1984. Donna has returned to campus in all her soigné splendor, which is somehow even splendider than it was in the spring of 83. I said in the last episode that it was then, in the spring of 83, that Donna Tartt became Donna Tartt in quotation marks. Nine months later, she's still Donna Tartt in quotation marks. Only the quotation marks have gotten bolder, heavier, more deeply grooved. There's the customs and costume, Paula Powers, class of 86. Donna did invite me once to a martini hour. Apparently she drank a lot of martinis, like she really appreciated a good martini. I've never had one. I remember she was all dressed in this beautiful, like brocade, sort of tight suit, sort of retro suit and pencil skirt and these black high heels and this long cigarette holder. And she had, you know, red lipstick on and like brilliant green eyes and was smoking a cigarette and drinking a martini. and. She just seems so cool. There's the body language. Nancy Morowitz, class of 86. She had a very delicate way of holding the cigarette between her fingers and then bringing it to her lips and exhaling sort of gently. <laughs> These are things I remember quite well. And she had a very pretty mouth. So watching her smoke a cigarette was particularly lovely. And there's the mystique. Again, Paula Powers. Donna was so discreet, as far as I knew, and everybody else, it was just such a free-for-all all all the time. So there's just a lot of speculation about Donna herself, and then whether she was with Paul, or she was gay or asexual. Donna is with Paul, definitively. An ambiguous mean, though, is part of her aura, her ambiance. Dan Ross, a friend of Donna's, is class of 85, but a transfer. He didn't get to Bennington until fall of 83, after Paul had graduated. I never saw him. You know, it was like they belonged to a secret society and they'd come and go. And I never saw him in communal spaces. Donna spoke with Paul often, and we all knew who he was. Even Donna's backstory has acquired polish. It's become smooth, opaque. Remember in the previous episode, how she simultaneously baffled and irritated Matt Jacobson, the, quote, real Bunny Corcoran, when she spoke of Grenada, Mississippi? Something was off about her tone. It was brittle, too bright, overly familiar, and it grated on Matt. Well, what happened to him won't happen to anyone else. She's now workshopped the material. Richard Papin, the protagonist of The Secret History, comes from Plano, California, 
Donna reads. Plano. The word conjures up drive-ins, tracked homes, waves of heat rising from the blacktop. My years there created for me an expendable past, disposable as a plastic cup, which I suppose was a very great gift in a way. On leaving home, I was able to fabricate a new and far more satisfying history, full of striking, simplistic environmental influences, a colorful past, easily accessible to strangers. The dazzle of this fictive childhood full of swimming pools and orange groves and dissolute, charming showbiz parents, has all but eclipsed the drab original. In last week's New Yorker is a profile of Claude Fredericks, The Most Ambitious Diary in History, by Ben Anastas. Anastas details a letter Donna sent to Claude over NRT, non-resident term, 1983 to 1984. Quote, Tart describes a household aflutter with telegrams and phone calls and parties and presents and flowers. Her sister is about to have her debutante ball, and seamstresses are going in and out. Tart tells Fredericks that she has insulated herself from the excitement by moving into a playhouse in the backyard, where she spent time as a little girl. It's quite small, she writes, but so is she. Tart finds it comforting to live amidst all the tea sets and stuffed animals and rag rugs she grew up with. Her family, however, is upset. Each night, her mother comes out to the playhouse, dressed elegantly for a party, and offers her extra blankets, begging her to come home, end quote. So Donna doesn't fictionalize her background as Richard does. Richard's parents haven't got movie business connections, or a pool, or charm, for example. But she does mythologize her background. Like Richard, she portrays herself as the child of privilege, bored and pampered and faintly contemptuous, a careless young aristocrat. And just as Richard has his Hollywood spiel, she has her Moonlights and Magnolia one. Todd O'Neill. She always created this funny mixture of, you know, the daughter of some English country squireen and crossed with Gone with the Wind. I could never quite figure out what she was striving after. So, okay, Donna is a known figure at Bennington, without quite being part of the scene. Sydney Cooper, class of 88. I lived in Franklin, the same house as Donna Tart. I don't actually think I ever saw her walking around campus. Her movements were so sort of furtive and secretive. I mean, I just, I feel like I never, I only saw her at the Franklin coffee houses. We had these things called coffee houses. She would always be there and dressed you know, impeccably with almost a suit on. I think she was already very clear about what was next. And I think she had a boyfriend who she knew she was going to marry. I feel like she recognized her gift, intelligence, wit, and the way that she was in a way positioning herself. And yet Donna's social, if only on her own terms. Matt Jacobson. She had these what she called tea parties. I never went to them. Although she put invitations in my box, but um, I just sort of pictured them to be, uh, you know, college girl salons. A tea party, like something her mother or grandmother might have thrown for the local chapter of DAR, Daughters of the American Revolution, except different. In a 1992 profile of Donna, Brett is quoted as saying, Donna gave what were supposed to be teas, but she had this little cabinet with liquor in it. We'd get totally shit-faced. 
Donna is the only person I know who can drink me under the table. Brett still admires Donna's capacity, though he seems to look back on the teas themselves with less fondness. I really wasn't into, like, the tea parties. It really was not my style. Donna presented herself like something out of Oscar Wilde. She was Oscar Wilde. Brett, as we've discussed in previous episodes, has adopted a persona. And that persona is, in essence, Kitty Warhol. Its signifiers are coolness, passivity, indifference. Sure, this persona takes effort to maintain. You've got to slap on the right pair of sunglasses, blank out your expression just so. But it's nothing is basic bitch compared to Donna's. To be Oscar Wilde as a girl and in the 1980s, this isn't something that just happens. You must go to extreme and elaborate lengths and keep going to them. Now, let's talk for a second about the word persona. Persona is derived from the Latin persona, meaning literally mask. So what's behind Donna's need to stay masked? Brett again. She was always very contained and very theatrical in a very contained way. It was hard to get a real sense of Donna. And that was up until, I mean, really honestly, the last time I hung out with her was in, I would say, the early 90s. I think that um, she always seemed uh, private. And someone who was, um, you know, what's the word, bracketed by etiquette, it seemed the, the safest path for her to walk along. Obviously, Brett finds Donna as difficult to read or know as classics boys Todd O'Neill and Matt Jacobson claimed in the last episode that they do. But he ascribes to this inscrutability an entirely different motive. Whereas Todd and Matt see it as a kind of poker face and rooted in her need to play games with people, manipulate them, gain and hold the advantage, Brett sees it as a form of self-protection, her acting out of fear or dread. It seemed the safest path for her to walk along, he says, which isn't, by the way, all he has to say on the subject. I cut him off a few seconds ago. I'll rewind, then let him finish his thought. It seemed the, the safest path for her to walk along, though I don't necessarily feel that way in some of the stuff she wrote at Bennington, where I did, uh, there was a real kind of, you know, an elegance, but a pushing up against boundaries and facades and, you know, whatnot. Donna's writing, then, is everything that her persona is not, apart, of course, from elegant. It takes risks, reveals truths. Donna isn't being self-protective or walking the safe path, is absolutely making herself vulnerable in this new work of hers, The Secret History, though she isn't calling it that yet. Here's Brett. She gave me something called The Gods of Illusion, and it was The Secret History. I'm going to quote myself. No law against that, though maybe there should be. In episode six, I said, I'm not an utter rube here. I don't believe that the secret history is straight up Romana Clay or that Richard Papin is Donna Tartan drag. But I was being semi-disingenuous because I do believe, as I think I've made clear, that the secret history is somewhat of a Romana Clay and that there's a very definite blurring of the boundaries between Richard and Donna that he serves as a sort of doppelganger for her. Donna is putting it all on the line emotionally with this book, and as a reader, you can feel that. Brett and I discuss what it's like reading early drafts of The Secret History, which he did mostly in the capacity of friend, but occasionally in the capacity of classmate. Brett and Donna took a novel writing tutorial together with Arturo Vivante, 
the only writing class they took together besides Arturo's workshop their first year. There were no notes to give, and I've always maintained this. There was nothing, nothing. It was perfectly formed. The writing was perfect. I believe The only note I ever gave Donna was when we were in that fiction writing tutorial. And I said, something is nagging at me, and that is you have an 18-year-old male protagonist who is not noticing women Mm -hmm. women or anything. I think that's unrealistic. I will never forget the expression. Daggers. Daggers. Black. It was just a silence. It was a frozen moment. She didn't nod. She didn't say anything. And I said, that's all I have to say. Otherwise, it's great. You know, yeah. it's great. The moment passed. And then I began to notice that the character was noticing Camilla. Camilla, the girl twin in The Secret History. More interesting to me than Brett's note. A good one, though I can't imagine that Donna didn't always intend for Camilla to make Richard's heart go pitter-patter. Or Donna's reaction to Brett's note, amusing as it is, is the fact that Donna's soliciting notes from Brett at all. People at Bennington know she's working on a novel, but they know little about the novel itself. She doesn't, for instance, show it to Jonathan Latham. Granted, she and Jonathan have had a falling out by this point. Still, he did show her his novel in progress, Apes in the Plan. She doesn't show it to fellow writer Joe Eisenstadt either, and she and Joe have not had a falling out. I don't think I read any of Secret... No, I don't think... I think Donna was showing it to Brett, though. If Donna lets Brett read it, she must trust him, trust his judgment. I ask Brett why he thinks this is so. I think she saw someone who took it very seriously. And I think that that made it easier for her to deal with the stories that I was turning in, which were really about, like, rock stars and vampires and drugs, violent death written in that kind of minimalist style. Cinematic, but, you know, um, just a kind of minimalism that I'm sure Donna did not like. What's more, Brett brings her another reader, a classmate of his in Nick Del Blanco's fiction workshop, which Donna is not taking for the second year in a row. I introduced David Lipsky to Donna. Introduces David Lipsky to Donna before, obviously. David advises him not to publish Less Than Zero thus killing the friendship, as chronicled in episode eight. Here's David. Donna, for whatever reason, she had decided not to be in workshop that semester. So Brett brought her to some place he and I were meeting, and he said, look, I really want you to meet Donna. Like, I had heard about her, I'd heard that she was great, and that she was working on something really cool, and so Brett just wanted me to meet her, and he really wanted me to read her book. A bit ago, I rattled off the three defining characteristics of Brett's persona. Coolness, passivity, indifference. And yet Brett is none of these things with Donna. He extends himself for her, goes out of his way to make sure her needs as a writer are getting met. Why? Does he see how fundamentally alike they are? That what's under her hard, glossy shell of a persona is the same as what's under his. A self that's soft and pink and tender self that's easily crushed? I suspect so. David, on how Brett is with Donna. Protective. He was very protective. When you're in high school and you're writing hard, there aren't that many people around to show your stuff to. It's a weird thing because your friends are really smart, but if they haven't done a certain kind of reading, 
they can't judge why something sounding slangy is going to be really cool. They would just say this is ungrammatical or why a really close and beautifully reported version of a party you went to would be great and interesting to somebody who wasn't at that party. So when you get to college, the thrill is there are other readers. Like there is a smart audience that can actually come to some sort of assessment of something that you've been working on privately for years. And so Brett must have had the sense that Donna had the same sort of problem. The basic thing was that this person is extremely sensitive about their work, but they would love you to take a look at it because your read will be helpful. The Donna that David encounters that day is nothing like the immaculate and self-possessed creature that everyone's been describing. My sense of her then, and it's funny because it doesn't match the photos that are in the Esquire piece. David's referring to the oral history I wrote back in 2019 for Esquire magazine on Bennington College, class of 1986, the test run for this podcast. Like in the Esquire piece is a cool, frisky person who is happy where she is and is confident, basically. Whereas the person who Brett, and it may be that I was meeting her writer self, and there's, there's nobody whose writer self isn't this person, maybe. Because the person that I met, it was like their soul was wearing like a sort of shabby thrift store used raincoat with the lapel up and their and their head, which was still wet from a shower, was was sort of held down so you couldn't get a clear look at their face. So I met with her and she was my really strongest sense of her. She seemed very small and humid with anxiety, like someone who had been cloistered and was just sort of thinking about their work. In a funny way, she seemed like what Brett was trying to be, even though he was very popular and assiduous, which is she was just the withdrawn and in a sense, truer version of Brett. Like she really was withdrawn. This is a privileged glimpse David is giving us of Donna. As intimate, if intimate in a different way, as the one we get in the recollections of Ben Herring, her boyfriend from Ole Miss, It is the soft, pink, tender, crushable self that's crawled out from the hard, glossy shell. We talked a little bit about the book she was doing, and she asked me to uh, read the book. And it was called, then I think it was called God of Illusions. And she probably gave me like 70, 80, 90 pages of it. I probably read it in a night or two. Like, one had to like her because you could see that she was in the grip of a story that she loved and that she loved doing that work. Uh, is it just me, or does it seem like David's circling the point instead of getting to it? Okay, David, cut the hemming and hawing. What did you think of the book? So I remember actually just not liking it. And I remember talking to her afterwards and having to kind of pick my words carefully because she clearly was really talented and she was clearly really important to Brett. And I think this dynamic has shifted to some degree so that now it is to Brett's credit that Donna talks about him with great affection. But there it was the reverse. There it was that Brett, who seemed both sensitive and impervious, was saying, here's this writer who I really like. I think you guys are going to hit it off. And so out of affection for respect to Brett, one wanted to not say anything that was especially negative to Donna. David's beef. It didn't seem modern. 
when we talked about it afterwards, I said, look, obviously this is really well written. Like it's great, but these characters aren't real. Like they are pretending to be archetypes. And your main character doesn't seem to be aware that in 1984, nobody would be acting as if they were at Oxford in 1920. David, I should remind you, is class of 87. So by the time he matriculates at Bennington, the classics group, i.e. 80s American college students who in fact do act like they're at Oxford in the 20s, have already left. Not that their existence necessarily invalidates his argument. To quote Donna and Jonathan's poetry teacher, Stephen Sandy, historicity does not ensure relevance. So I think I made the case for looking at these characters in sort of an ambity way, which is why are people at a campus that is pretty recognizably our campus, why are they walking around in ties and like, you know, acting extremely tweedy? Anne Beattie, the great minimalist writer. So the criticism that Donna must have sensed would be lobbed her way if she took Nick Delbanco's workshop is lobbed her way by David Lipsky, a student in Nick Delbanco's workshop. Perhaps she was right after all in assuming that Nick's workshop wouldn't nurture her work and was wise to avoid it, as David laughingly acknowledges. Yeah. <laughs> you could also, you also might argue this, which is that um, my response to it was wholly negative. So that shows her good sense. Asterisk. Nick Del Blanco is among the country's finest living creative writing teachers. His students include, in addition to Pratt, Andrea Barrett, Michael Cunningham, Celeste Ning, Jesmyn Ward, Jagotsi Obiyama, and Jaya Tolentino. About as diverse a group of talents, sensibilities, and styles as can be imagined. I do not believe that he himself would have attempted to impose on Donna a minimalist aesthetic, but the members of his early to mid-80s workshop, so under the minimalist spell, to wit, David Lipsky, might have. Final thought on this subject before moving on. I interviewed David four separate times for this podcast. In between rounds one and two, he went and read The Secret History, something he'd never actually done. So turned off was he by what he saw of The God of Illusions. I'm going to get to his reaction to The Secret History, but not until a later episode. So Donna Tartt isn't Bennington's only prodigal that spring. Here's Jonathan Lethem. By the end of my freshman year, I was full of surly outsider resentment. I decided to take off the fall semester and go back to New York. Jonathan goes away from Bennington, comes back to Bennington, yet his situation at Bennington remains fundamentally unchanged. He's still with his girlfriend, Maddie Horseman. He's still posing as an art student, and he's still surly. Here, though, is something new. He's dealing. Jonathan. There were legends around the college's capacity to protect the student drug dealers. Why wouldn't you be a dealer, you know? <laughs> when I went back to New York, it was like um, it was like on wire where they declare that one region of Baltimore to be Amsterdam, where it's legal. We were yeah. in college in Amsterdam. So if you were interested in getting high, you could either be giving money or, or collecting money. Certainly for <laughs> anyone who wasn't... Um, you know, at the, at the kind of maximum level of trust fund obliviousness, uh, it would seem axiomatic that dealing was a better choice. <laughs> Jonathan only deals a few times, doesn't make a habit of it or a career, which isn't to say he has no close calls. I'm going to read a passage from the college section of Jonathan's 2003 novel, Fortress of Solitude. Word had spread among the campus cokeheads that I was holding a fire sale out of Oswald apartment. 
The first knock on the door wasn't a customer, but a member of the cleaning staff, a woman I'd seen dozens of times before, but without any name that I knew. It was her job to scour the Oswald bathrooms, most of which were common spaces adjoining public corridors. But once a week, she had to clean the private bathroom in our apartment, and so we let her in. With barely a nod, she vanished into the back of the suite. We all did lines. It was five o'clock. The first wave of students would be lining up with their trays in the dining hall. The party at Crumbly wouldn't be underway for hours, but it was already dark and we were high and the music was loud. Our party was underway. Friday night was open wide and written stone. Suddenly, the cleaning woman barreled out with her body protecting her yellow bucket of cleaning supplies like a tiny fullback. She must have been cowering in the bathroom, her work completed, listening as the party developed, praying we disperse for dinner. Then, as the minutes ticked past, it would have dawned, with horror, that we weren't going anywhere, that she had no alternative but to make her mad run. This she did very nimbly, with the harried grace of prey. She might have muttered, excuse me, but not audibly. Whether she'd understood the references in our talk or the scrape of razor against steel, she evidenced understanding by her fear, the way she'd dunned her rabbity eyes against seeing as she passed through. Then she was gone, leaving us shocked into silence under the razor saw music. Fiction in this case is fact in disguise, barely in disguise. Jonathan, on the scene I just read. Now it can be told that is a 100% documentary. <laughs> the Jonathan-like protagonist in Fortress will leave college soon after the cleaning lady incident. The real Jonathan will do the same. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini-series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, listeners, it's July, 1984. School's out for summer. Only a lot of the writing students, Brett, Donna, and Jonathan among them, stay on campus. The big attraction, the Bennington Summer Writing Workshop. Here's Nick Del Blanco. The late John Gardner and I conceived of the notion of a summer writing workshop as a working locale. By now, there's a certain been there, done that feel to such gatherings and the tedium of repeated experience. You can't throw a rock in New England without hitting a writer's conference. Back then, however, a group of people hurried to join. In the first five years, our list of invitees included Hortense Kalischer, John Cheever and Ralph Ellison, Louise Gluck and John Irving, Grace Paley, Robert Pinsky, John Updike, and too many more to name. The spirit of collective effort was very much in play. Another kind of spirit was everywhere in evidence. 
I can remember William Kennedy and Thomas Flanagan working their way through two bottles of scotch in one evening at our house. Donald Barthelme, George Booth, Blanche Boyd, Mary and Jim Robeson all graced the table, drinking and singing and smoking, telling jokes and telling lies. Editors and agents and publishers from New York and Boston came to rural Vermont to speak about aspects of the trade. And though there were, of course, some dissatisfied students and a spate of brief or failed romances, my overarching memory is of the serious good humor of it all. It sounds like a Midsummer's Night dream for the bookworm set. No wonder our principal players are sticking around. Brett's up to mischief. Here's writer Jim Robeson, who, along with his wife Mary, also a writer, is teaching at the summer workshop in 1984. A girl came to me and she was crying and she was terribly upset. And she said that Brett was just writing her life, including details of her love life. And she said, can he do that? Uh, Make him stop. But he's also down to business. He's taking a last pass at Lesson Zero, scheduled for publication in the spring, and is working all the time. Jill Eisenstadt. And Brett, he would go to a reading, and he would be, like, writing during the reading. Like, he'd go to all the readings, but sometimes he'd just have a notebook, and he'd just be writing in them. And then I remember copying him and doing that because sometimes it was boring, you know, whoever was reading. Brett's feeling inspired, and soon, so is Jill. She and Donna are sharing a dorm, Fell's house, are living right next door to each other in Fell's, in fact. One day, Donna tells Jill a story about tornadoes in Mississippi. It touches off something in the native New Yorker. That summer, Donna had told me that story about tornadoes making your ears bleed. And then I started writing about tornadoes, and then it somehow turned into writing about Rockaway, and then that's how it started, the whole book. The book being From Rockaway, Jill's first novel. Speaking of Donna, she's about to see, or not see, or barely see, a figure from the past, Ben Herring. Ben, who hasn't laid eyes on Donna since they danced to that Rolling Stones tune at the bar in D.C. over 1982 to 1983 NRT, on that encounter. It was summer of 84, and I can remember Bruce Springsteen and all these other videos that were popular on, on MTV at the time sort of streaming through my head whenever I think of that summer. But I was working for a congressman in D.C. That was my first job out of college. And she invited me uh, up to visit her at Bennington. So I'm driving in. So at some point, I um, stop and uh, call her. And she said, I'm, I'm not going to be here. I, I, I can't see you. I'm, I think she said that she was going away with her boyfriend to have been like what eight, ten, or twelve hours from home, making this huge long trip. And my thing was, my God, you you know invited me up here, and and it wasn't like she said just come up whenever. This was the date that was decided upon. For me, it was fine if she was dating somebody. Hey, I'd be glad to meet him. You know that type of situation. So what happened was. I just went kind of like uh, really upset on the phone, and there was a lot of screaming and yelling back and forth. I, I, I was so hurt. I just, I just couldn't believe she would possibly do that. If you could imagine the relationship we had and all the changes we'd gone through, I, I felt just really emotionally devastated. But 
I guess she felt sorry enough for me, or I, I, I don't know what happened, but she actually did meet me, and I don't even think that we even had lunch. I think that we uh, met briefly. I think we exchanged a hug. I, I can't remember, but that there was some redemption there. So Donna invites Ben to Bennington, wants him to come, and then doesn't. We have no way of knowing what's going on in her head at this moment. Maybe she thought Paul wouldn't be around on that day, found out he would. Or maybe Paul learned that she was meeting Ben and got upset. Or maybe she simply changed her mind. In any event, she and Ben are now irrevocably through. Jonathan is at Bennington too that summer, though he's no longer a student. He's dropped out, is officially a sophomore on leave, his designation to this day. Technically, he's living in Old Chatham, New York, at his friend Elliot's mother's house, which he and Elliot are supposed to be painting. But really, he's living with his girlfriend Maddie on campus, working as furiously on a first draft of Apes in the Plan as Brett is on a final draft of Less Than Zero. Maddie. So Jonathan had this big pile of paper, at least a ream, and it was upside down on our desk. And that was his novel. And out of respect, I just didn't look at it. That was his thing, you know? He's also taking part in the Bennington Summer Writing Workshop. Jonathan. They had the summer writing programs then, and I was all over that writing program. I wasn't enrolled in anything, but I just worked the margins. I went to all the readings, and I went to all the parties, and I was really nourishing myself, but as a kind of a ghost at the banquet. So hold on a second. He's not taking part. Not in a flesh and blood way, at least. Like he just said, he's the ghost at the banquet. He isn't even in the actual workshops, though Maddie is. I had failed piano, beginning piano. Frankly, I was too stoned. And I had to pick up a credit, so I went to creative writing. Brett was there. Donna Tart was there. I don't think Jonathan was in our group. I think he was just living with me and feeling like left out. Oh my God, is that true? Oh, but that made him mad. And that might be what's necessary. Not mad. Madder. Brett is already a fraught subject for Jonathan. As fraught, you could argue, as the subject of Bennington itself. And has become more fraught still since Less Than Zero sold to Simon & Schuster in April. Maddie, on Jonathan's reaction to the news of the novel's publication. He was pretty obsessed with... Brett. I would say pretty obsessed with Brett. As Jonathan admits. It was complicated for me that Brett was publishing so early. Yes, he represented the Bennington conflation of privilege and fame that I found so problematic, but he was also so accomplished. Here I was just warming up to this process and he'd blown off the top of the chart. That had me backpedaling from Bennington too. Finally, Jonathan can take it no more. He decides to hit the road really hit the road. Go not to Old Chatham, New York, or to Brooklyn, New York, but to Berkeley, California. First, though, a haircut. For him and for Maddie. Maddie. I'm like, hey, let's shave our heads. We did it on the lawn. We created this big trend. Like, six other people shaved our heads. Six people just at Bennington. According to Maddie, there's a convert in the outside world as well. Irish singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor. And excuse the text message beeps. It's easy to forget to turn off that pesky ringer. 
I cheated on Jonathan, okay? And when I met the new boyfriend, I was Paul. And he lived on St. Mark's. Um, Sinead O'Connor, all of a sudden, she saw me. You know, I know she saw me. And so, you know, I don't know why Sinead was on St. Mark's, but she was. She said, let me go bald too. Brett also takes notice of the new do. Jonathan. I seem to recall Brett putting a bald couple in the backdrop of one of his college scenes. Actually, Jonathan recalls wrong. There isn't a bald couple. There is, however, a bald guy. In Brett's college novel, that is, his Bennington novel, Rules of Attraction, Jonathan has a non-speaking role, is sort of a featured extra. He's the, quote, obnoxious poet who used to be cute before he shaved his head. So, summer writing workshop is over. Jonathan is now out in the great wide world. And I do mean the great wide world. For the next year or so, he's perpetually on the move. Thank goodness he refuses to let the romance with Maddie die, is committed to lovey-dovey from afar, because it means loads of his funny, funky letters. On the back of one envelope, he writes, quote, Postmaster, handle with taste. And we can thus keep tabs on him. In early August, he meets a bearded 30-something hippie type named Myron. Myron drives a VW Bug because what else would a bearded 30-something hippie type named Myron drive? Myron needs to get the Bug to Boulder, Colorado. Jonathan and his friend Elliot, itching to pay a visit to Elliot's uncle in Berkeley, agree to take it. After a series of picaresque misadventures, including a night spent in Wendover, Nevada, that's like an outtake from the Jonathan Demi road movie from hell, Something Wild, Jonathan and Elliot reach Elliot's uncle's where they are sumptuously accommodated in the garage. Jonathan is safe and sound, but he's also a stranger in a strange land. He makes gentle fun of Berkeley in a postcard to Maddie, writing in faux Northern California flower childies, quote, Berkeley is very much. They're my kind of people. I'm relating. Pretty good energy all around. On September 19th, he informs her of his intention to return to the East just as soon as he scrapes together the cash, adding, quote, the first thing I am doing is coming to live with you for a while. Is that news? Well, now it is a plan. From news to plan. And on September 21st, quote, don't send me so much news about Bennington, other students, etc., because I find it depressing. When I come, it will be for at least three weeks if you are serious about having me there. I will revise my novel or make a different one while I'm there. But it will take some time to get there. Right now, I'm working every fucking day just to be able to leave. Not my ideal vacation slash pathetic adventure. By late fall, the pathetic adventure will have come to an end and he'll be cozily ensconced with Maddie in her dorm room until the term runs out in December. So here's the crazy thing about Jonathan leaving Bennington. Once he does, he can't keep away. Crazy, yet not uncharacteristic. Jonathan, I've found, only feels comfortable when he's feeling awkward. Isn't at home unless he's out of place. He's the white kid in the black kid's school, then the poor kid in the rich kid's school. He's the writing student in the art department, the maximalist in the era of minimalists, the fantasist among realists. He was briefly, and will be again, the New Yorker in California. And now he's the dropout in college. Jonathan does not move back in with Maddie for the spring term, which should be his junior spring and what is Maddie's senior spring. She's a year older, remember? Instead, he's living at his stepmother's house in Brooklyn, working at Griffin Books in Manhattan. Since he quit school, the questions how to eat and where to sleep have become pressing ones, and he spends too much of his time answering them to ask when to write. 
On April 27th, he sends Maddie a Wobegon letter. Quote, money, money, money. I need a patron. I need you, rich rock star girlfriend. Me, pathetic, kept gigolo boyfriend locked in closet. Even if Jonathan isn't on campus all the time in the spring of 85, he's on campus often enough. His visits to Maddie are frequent, which means there's no buffer between him and Less Than Zero's spectacular debut in May. It hits him full in the face. It'll hit you full in the face too, listeners, next episode, when I really get into it. Maddie remembers how it affected Jonathan. The press would come in in their cars to interview Brett. The rivalry was like, oh, I'm like, why are you getting upset? Just keep writing the novel. If Brett's success is a taunt, it's also a goad. And Jonathan does keep writing, is writing and writing, as is Donna. That summer, the summer of 85, Donna lands an internship at The Atlantic, a venerable old magazine based in Boston. Jill Eisenstadt. Donna told me the story that she had an internship at The Atlantic, which was an internship that we all wanted. Anyway, and that she had showed her novel or part of her novel to an editor there who said, just, this isn't going anywhere, you know, give it up. This is a blow to Donna, almost a knockout one. It's Brett who picks her up off the floor. Jill again. She was going to give up and Brett convinced her not to and showed what she had done to Joe. And I guess Joe was a lot more encouraging. Joe, as in Joe McGinnis, the man so vital to Less Than Zero that Brett dedicated the book to him. On July 3rd, 1985, Donna writes Joe a letter postmarked Somerville, Massachusetts. She must be living with Paul during her stint at the Atlantic. She refers to him as Mr. McGinnis and compliments him on Fatal Vision, his nonfiction account of the murder trial of Jeffrey McDonald, which he was finishing in the fall of 82 when Brett was his student and which he published, and triumphantly, a number one New York Times bestseller in the summer of 83. She then thanks him for his kind words about her book. She is, she says, already working eight hours a day on it and intends to take a leave of absence from school in the fall so she can continue working. Donna is an undergraduate, still a writing student, yet she's conducting herself like a professional writer, one who understands the importance of putting in the time, of the steady application of effort, but also of making the necessary connections. To that end, she closes the letter by asking Joe if he has any ideas where she might try to publish her story, Elvis in Hell, and if he would consider working with her in the spring. Not on her thesis, which she's already doing with Claude, short fiction and a critical essay on T.S. Eliot, but on her novel. After all, a girl can never have too many mentors. So Donna is not on campus for the fall semester of her final year, also Brett's final year, and what should be Jonathan's final year. And neither, obviously, is Jonathan. Oh, wait. Well, here's the tricky part of the story, which I've kind of alluded to here or there, but it's never seemed like it was completely going to be worth anyone's time if I laid it all out. Worth it to me. So here it is, all laid out. Jonathan and Maddie planned on moving in together once she graduated in June. Then, over the summer, they broke up. Jonathan decided to head back to Berkeley, back to Elliot's uncle's garage, 
only he'd gotten involved with another girl at Bennington, Susan Goldman, class of 86, an artist. Jonathan. Susan and I had fallen in love and I was keeping the thread alive by sending her like a postcard every day. And eventually I figured out how to get back to the East Coast and I came up and I just joined her in her dorm room and was living as a ghost in the Bennington machine. Note, this is the second time Jonathan's played the role of ghost at Bennington. The other role he's reprising, gigolo boyfriend locked in closet. Only now he's Susan's gigolo boyfriend and locked in Susan's closet. And not just for a few weeks, for the remainder of the academic year. People thought I'd come back and I hadn't. I wasn't enrolled. But I was playing basketball with Miles and the varsity guys and I was working on my novel in Susan's dorm room. The only real problem was how to get fed. And so Susan and I took, um, she was in some science class and we took a big textbook and hollowed it out and put a piece of Tupperware inside it. And she would go to the dining hall and just fill up the Tupperware for me. Jonathan's on the Tupperware diet until graduation day, which crazily enough, he's at because it's Susan's graduation day. Over email, Jonathan writes, I was like Huck Finn at his own funeral. Donna and Brett are there too. There are 106-ish students total in the graduating class that year. I say 106-ish because I found that number in a piece on the website Literary Bennington. When I contacted the administration to check if the number was correct, the very nice director of media relations and public affairs suggested I, quote, go with it, even if the school couldn't quite confirm it. The perfect Bennington response. It's Donna who's delivering the commencement speech. Nancy Morowitz, a member of the Senior Speaker Committee on how Donna was selected. I think we were the 50th graduation class. I remember it was some kind of a milestone. And so there was the sense that we wanted it to be something not usual for Bennington. So, you know, no dogs, no frisbees. I remember also that we didn't get the usual Bennington diploma which was like a piece of green construction paper (laughs) with your name on it. Somebody's mother did calligraphy, so she did our diplomas. So they looked like a normal diploma. I mean, there was just very much this sense of let's make it a, a sort of special thing. It's the 50th year. I don't know how the speech committee was, you know, put together, whether we all volunteered or, or what. But obviously we chose Donna as the senior class speaker. A copy of the speech is floating around the internet. I'm going to read the key bits of it to you. Quote, There is a time in everyone's youth when character is forever fixed. For me, and I believe for most of us here, our Bennington years were that time. So far as I'm aware, no audio or video recording of the ceremony exists, but you can actually hear Donna recite these words because she cribbed them for the secret history, put them in the mouth of her alter ego, Richard Papin. This is Donna Tart doing Richard Papin doing Donna Tart. I suppose there is a certain crucial interval in everyone's life when character is fixed forever. For me, it was that first fall term I spent at Hampton. Donna concludes her speech, quote, in the most vital part of our memories, this lawn will always be the same impossible shade of green that it is this very night. Bennington will always be with us, no matter what. Nancy Morowitz. So Donna 
gave a beautiful and elegant speech, which we'd all read before. It was the basis for our choosing her. This was the night before graduation, so all the families were there. It was sort of a dinner. And, um, you know, she gave this beautiful speech, and everyone was so terribly impressed. My memory of it as a 21-year-old person was that it was elegant and, you know, perfect and sailed us all off into this, <laughs> into this elegant, perfect future. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Brett's famous graduation party. I rode up in the elevator with Andy Warhol. That was the height of, ah, it was just Bennington and New York coming together at the Carlisle. It was perfect. It was the 80s in New York, celebrities, fame, decadence, cocaine. I mean, it was fun. This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, Artwork and design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing by Brian Swarth, Josefina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.